Turn the word of God to the book of Amos, chapter 8. Book of Amos, chapter 8. Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, and behold a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what seest thou? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then said the Lord unto me, The end is come upon my people of Israel. I will not again pass by them any more. And the songs of the temple shall be howling that day, saith the Lord. There shall be many dead bodies in every place. They shall cast them forth with silence. Hear this, O ye that swallow up the needy, even to make the poor of the land to fail, saying, When will the new moon be gone, that we may sell corn, and the Sabbath, that we may set forth wheat, making the ephath small, and the shekel great, and set, and falsifying the balances by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver, and the needy for a pair of shoes, yea, and sell the refuse of the wheat. The Lord hath sworn by the excellence of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their works. Shall not the land tremble for this, and every one mourn that dwelleth therein? And it shall cast out, and it shall rise up holy as the flood, and shall be cast out and drowned as by the flood of Egypt. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord God, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in the clear day. <clears throat> and I will turn your feasts into mourning, and all your songs into lamentation. And I will bring up sackcloths upon all loins, and baldness upon every head. And I will make it as the morning of the sun, of the morning of an only son, and the end thereof is a bitter day. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea, and from north even to the east, they shall run to and fro, to seek the word of the Lord, and shall not find it. In that day shall the fair virgins and young men faint for thirst. They that swear by the sin of Samaria and say, Thy God, O Dan, liveth, and the manor of Beersheba liveth. Even they shall fall and never rise up again. Thanks be to God. For this, his infallible word. Amen. It's a great pleasure to welcome as our speaker tonight, the Reverend Phil Arthur, who is a son of the Northeast, and indeed of Sunderland. Uh, and I'm, I've no doubt he'll refer to that at some stage during the course of the evening. Uh, he grew up in Sunderland, went to school in Sunderland, 
and then went to the University of Cambridge, uh, and uh, where he studied, I believe, history, and uh, no doubt that will shine through too when he speaks to us tonight. He's now the minister and pastor of the Free Grace Baptist Church in the county of Lancashire in Lancaster. And so he's there in Lancaster as a minister and pastor. It was a great privilege for Humphrey Dobson and myself to speak at his church a few months ago in Lancaster. And we do thank him for his hospitality. Um, He's come to talk to us tonight very much about the commandment, the eighth commandment. I shall not steal. And uh, he comes as a friend, as a supporter of the Christian suit, and someone who we're delighted to have with us. And uh, I'm not going to say a lot more about Phil. He has also written a number of books. They're on the bookstall tonight. Two commentaries on two Corinthians and one and two Thessalonians, and also a commentary on the book of Hebrews called No Turning Back. And those books are available on the bookstall tonight, which you'll be able to look at at the close of the meeting. So, without any more ado, a warm welcome to Phil Arthur, and we very much look forward to what he has to say to us tonight. We're going to follow the normal uh, format for the evening. He's going to speak to us for about 50 minutes or thereabout, and there will be an opportunity later for questions and comments. So, welcome, Phil. We're grateful to you coming tonight, and we look forward to what you have to say to us. Thank you, John, for the welcome, and thank you to the Christian Institute for having me this evening. I'm very grateful for the opportunity to serve you in the cause of the gospel this evening, and grateful for the opportunity that this gives me to show some solidarity, first of all with uh, George Curry, the minister of the church here, a man I've known and appreciated for a good many years, and it's good to stand, as it were, shoulder to shoulder with a fellow soldier in the cause of Christ, and also to register my appreciation for the work of the Christian Institute and to serve the Institute, if I can, in some small way this evening. I might also say that it's uh, an increasingly rare treat for me to be on the correct side of the Pennines this evening and to be in a place where English is spoken correctly. (laughs) And, uh, of course, um, I ought to add that there are just one or two nuances which make the English spoken 12 miles away from here ever so slightly better. (laughs) But uh, you'd have been disappointed if I hadn't said something along those lines. Actually, let's start in Sunderland, because I remember this vividly. It was in the early 1980s. It was Sunday morning. And the pastor of an evangelical church had just begun his children's talk. He said this to the boys and girls. Suppose you were walking along the street 
and saw a 20-pound note on the pavement. What would you do? A hand shot up, and a young lady of about six years old said this, I would pick it up and put it in my pocket. At that point, her mother went bright red (laughs) and tried to stifle her daughter as an exercise in damage limitation. But what would you do in the same circumstances? Our topic this evening is the shortest of the Ten Commandments. They're all, of course, terse and pointed, yet they are at the same time packed with meaning. The eighth, you shall not steal, is especially direct. The one thing you could not say is that there's much in the way of ambiguity in that statement. You shall not steal. And at one level, the meaning of it is so obvious that we simply cannot evade it. And yet, at another level, there is much more to this commandment than meets the eye. And I'd like to begin, first of all, by speaking to this um, element in the commandment. This is my first heading. What the commandment assumes. What the commandment assumes. I'd like to suggest that it takes something for granted. The Eighth Commandment is an expression of the justice of God. And as such, it operates on the assumption that there is a God-given right to private property. Let me explain. If the Almighty is displeased when the property of one person is appropriated by someone else, it follows that a person has the right given by God to accumulate possessions, financial assets, and so on. And it's proper that these things remain under our control until we ourselves dispose of them in some legitimate way. There is such a thing as mine and thine, as mine and yours. There's an interesting sidelight on this in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. You can read all about it in the opening verses of Acts chapter 5. They lied to the Holy Spirit about the proportion of the money that they had realized from the sale of some property and then claimed that they had given to the church. Now, the ill-fated couple did not incur the wrath of God because of the way that they disposed of their goods. Rather, they incurred the wrath of God for giving the impression that their generosity was greater than it actually was. Now, in the narrative of their story, if you note the Apostle Peter's telling phrase, While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Acts chapter 5 and verse 4. Now this makes it clear that the individual has a right to own property. 
And now to take the point a little further, there's also a direct connection between the things that we own and the providence of God. First Chronicles 29, verse 11 and following, we read these words, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty, for all that is in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Now similarly, in James chapter 1 verse 17 we read this, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. <coughs> In the first section that I read we had this phrase, both riches and honor come from you. And then in the quotation from James chapter 1, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Now that means that theft is first of all an invasion of the rights of our neighbors. It's noticeable actually that the victims of domestic burglary often feel a sense of emotional violation. And they describe it as being rather akin to rape. But theft is more than merely that. Theft is also an assault on the wisdom and justice of God. For it is Almighty God who has allocated various measures of property and well-being to various individuals. And the person who steals, in effect, is saying this in his heart. God has not been fair to me. God has not distributed his blessings fairly and I have to engage in the redistribution of wealth that the Almighty has distributed in a way that's inappropriate and unfair to me. In effect, the thief is really saying, in terms of the things that he steals, God ought to have given that to me and not to him or to her. This then is what the commandment assumes, the right to private property. But now let's take things a step further. And my second heading this evening is what the commandment forbids. What the commandment forbids. And the straightforward explanation is that the commandment forbids what Achan did after the siege of Jericho. He took something that wasn't rightfully his. It's described in the authorized version of the Holy Scriptures in a delightfully uh, quaint way. He took a goodly Babylonish garment and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold. So at one level, you see, the commandment simply forbids taking something that isn't ours by right. But by implication, I would like to suggest that the commandment goes much further. This is helpfully summed up for us in question 110 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Of all the confessions of faith that belong to the 16th century, I think the Heidelberg Catechism is pastorally delicious. 
It has so many helpful uh, ways of expressing things. It's a joy to read and study it. And question 110 has this to say. What does God forbid in the Eighth Commandment? God forbids not only such theft and robbery as are punishable by the magistrate, and in 16th century English that simply means as a punishable by law, but he also brands as theft all wicked tricks and devices whereby we aim to appropriate our neighbor's goods, whether by force or with show of right, as unjust weights, measures and wares, false coins, usury, or other means forbidden by God. Likewise, all covetousness and all waste of his gifts. The Bible itself includes a number of examples of theft. Receiving stolen goods, for instance, is mentioned in the book of Proverbs, chapter 29 and verse 24. Listen to this. Whoever is a partner with a thief hates his own life. He swears to tell the truth, but he reveals nothing. Dishonest weights and measures are condemned too. Proverbs 11, verse 1. Now, of course, we don't often encounter this problem in modern society. Uh, it's a relatively rare thing these days, isn't it, to buy things and to find that the shopkeeper is using an old-style pair of scales, uh, although it's not so long ago that a market trader in Sunderland was uh, in trouble with the authorities for refusing to change to metric scales because his customers preferred pounds and ounces. I have a sneaking sympathy for the fellow in question as far as that goes. It's not easy in today's world to give short weight in the old sense of the term. But if we think of it in these terms, giving customers less than they were led to expect, what about the telesales industry? Have you never had a phone call from somebody with an Indian accent telling you that you have won a luxury holiday in Mallorca? A promise is made, you see. It's held out before you and you're given the impression that something wonderful is coming your way, but there's always a catch, isn't there? And I would suggest that there's a kind of selling by false weight in this sort of thing. There's another instance in Psalm 37 and verse 21. The wicked borrows and does not repay, but the righteous shows mercy and gives. Now, one of the most frequent lies told in modern Britain is just this. The check's in the post. You even have a species of businessman in modern society who deliberately waits as long as possible to settle invoices and often means that the people that are expecting the money are in real difficulties. I know of a fine painter and decorator in North Lancashire, who was driven out of business because a client, much better off than he was, kept him waiting for a payment of several thousand pounds to the point where the bank refused the poor man's requests for further loan facilities while he waited for the payment. And it's sobering to think, actually, that we can even rob God, according to Holy Scripture, 
The prophet Malachi says that we do so when we withhold from God and therefore appropriate for our own use tithes and offerings. When I first came across that, you can find it in Malachi chapter 3, I was struck by the fact that he mentioned not only tithes but also offerings. Those Christians who practice tithing are used to thinking that a tenth of their income is automatically the Lord's anyway, uh, and therefore they would have no quibble. But in a sense, the offering too, if we keep back from giving it, is a form of robbing God. Now, I'm sure you've met this. In today's world, a lot of theft is justified by the idea that certain crimes are victimless. Have you come across this, the idea of the victimless crime? Yes, it would be wrong to mug an old lady and steal her purse, but small-scale theft from a thriving business doesn't hurt anybody. And this kind of thinking, it's, it's really the Robin Hood syndrome, robbing from the rich to give to the poor, but the poor in question is usually oneself. It often takes this form, stealing from the public purse. Benefit fraud on the one hand, usually by the relatively poor. Large-scale tax evasion on the other hand, usually by the relatively well-to-do. The builder who offers you a cash-only deal, where the price is cheaper because it isn't put through the books. Or the lad who signs on every Thursday and then does foreigners, moonlighting in his white transit, Now, these people are all depriving Caesar of what is his by right. And we must render to Caesar those things that are his, according to the Lord Jesus himself. And by the way, of course, these activities all increase the tax burden on law-abiding citizens. It also needs saying that those who take advantage of that kind of scam... Those who are willing to give cash only to the moonlighting painter and decorator or builder, well, they're essentially accessories after the fact. It's a form of receiving stolen goods. And shoplifting is not a victimless crime because it makes the prices charged to honest customers significantly higher because that is the only way that the firms in question can cover their losses. Large operations like Marks and Spencer and British Home Stores will tell you that they have to factor in a significant percentage to cover the losses due to shoplifting. Now, in the same way, internet bank fraud, which has recently acquired the name phishing, spelt with a PH rather than an F, That means higher bank charges for the rest of us. Uh, Just to mention something which may have a little local interest, you can't have escaped the fact that people who live on Wearside have recently acquired the nickname Mackham. It is a fairly recent thing, uh, at least at a popular level. Uh, I can well remember growing up in Sunderland like 
most people in the old industrial heartland of the northeast, we thought of ourselves as Geordies. We always did. My father, who grew up in Seam Harbour, which is slightly to the south of Sunderland, would have thought of himself as a Geordie and would have been glad to use the name. Uh, we were all in it together in that sense. Even though the football rivalry was there, uh, we were all part of a similar sort of local culture. Uh, but more recently, this word Mackham has crept in. It's not very flattering, actually. And it has its origins in banter from the colliery communities. Uh, Think of Sunderland and the main industry in the centre of what's now a city, it was a town when I grew up in it, uh, was shipbuilding. But around the periphery there were a number of colliery communities. And the feeling was in the colliery villages people were honest. You left your front doors open, you never locked them. Uh, When the lads went underground at the pit they would leave their locker doors open, never lock them. Everybody was in the same boat socially, you wouldn't steal off a marrow. Uh, So colliery people were honest, but they weren't like that in Sunderland, that was the thinking. Because there they worked in factories, and they're a bit different, you know. Um, They would pilfer, they would take things away in their pockets or their haversacks. What they do in Sunderland is they mack them and tack them out with them. So the colliery village term for a townie, really, was a mack them and tack them, shortened eventually to mack them. Um, You're not surprised then to learn that I don't really care for the word particularly. There are more subtle forms of theft that we need to allow for. Idleness at work. That means drawing pay for work that we haven't done. Every office has those who take excessive toilet breaks or who socialise around the photocopier. One industrialist commented last week um, that if the government's proposal to ban smoking in all workplaces, if that goes ahead, then it's obviously going to be the case that in numerous workplaces, some people will sneak out on a frequent basis to stand in the street outside for a quick fag. And somebody was seriously suggesting that means will have to be brought in to dock their pay pro rata for the amount of time they spend away from the workplace. A manager of a Christian enterprise a publishing house actually, and this is going back about 20 years, was pestered by his workforce. Most of them believers. They wanted a daily prayer meeting at work. Now their enthusiasm for this idea dried up when he retorted that if there was to be a daily prayer meeting at work, it should not take place in the firm's time, but that they should all come half an hour early. What do you think of that? The growth of the internet has made plagiarism much easier than before. That's the habit of stealing someone else's scholarship, of robbing another person's ideas. In the past, of course, if you were going to do that, you did at least have to read the person's books to be able to get away with it. But nowadays, you can simply access a person's work over the internet and download huge chunks of it. And there's no doubt that... uh, Teenagers facing public examinations are increasingly learning the habit of plagiarising over the internet. But when churches duplicate songs without a copyright licence, aren't they depriving the author of royalties that were his by right? We, 
read just now that statement from uh, Proverbs about the man who borrows and doesn't repay. I suppose there's not a minister of the gospel with a decent library in the whole country who wouldn't identify with what I'm just about to say. People borrow my books. Oh, by the way, it's a great relief to stand in a part of England where I can say books and not have people titter at me for doing it. Um, People borrow my books and they're under the impression that they're like homing pigeons. (laughs) That they find their way back to my study unaided. Is it possible that elderly people are robbed of care that they have a right to expect in our society? And I'd like to suggest that adultery is a form of theft. A casual fling has often robbed both parties of their honor and children of a stable home. You can't miss the fact that a lot of attention has focused on Boris Johnson over the last few weeks. But surely he's not the only person to blame. I don't mean to absolve him of any responsibility for his actions, but there's also a person named Petronella Wyatt who seems to have made no conscience about targeting a married man who had four children, whose peace of mind has now been taken from them. They will never be able to feel about their father in the same way that they did before. That woman has taken something from that wife and those children. Incidentally, it's extremely difficult to break just one of the commandments. When King David made his disastrous liaison with Bathsheba, he broke the seventh commandment by committing adultery, the tenth by wanting to, the eighth commandment by stealing another man's wife and by stealing her purity. He broke the ninth commandment by concocting a cover-up and he broke the sixth commandment by arranging the death of Uriah. And I'd like to suggest that we can even steal a person's good name. We do that by indulging in gossip. And there's a particularly devious evangelical way of doing that. Had you heard about so-and-so, mind I'm telling you this just for prayer. (coughs) If you give credence to rumors, a person who is entitled to respect will receive suspicion instead. Now the red-top newspapers have destroyed countless reputations by operating on the principle that if you throw enough mud at the wall, some of it is sure to stick. But those of us who buy those publications connive at that habit of thieving people's reputations. But then, as I think about evangelical churches generally, of whatever denominational background... It doesn't tend to be the case that many of them are destroyed by heresy or by blatant sin. But a good many are destroyed by gossip. Simple, uncontrolled and malicious use of the tongue. 
Well, some thoughts then on what the commandment forbids. But now I'd like to speak for a little while on what the commandment requires. What it requires. You see, where something is forbidden, the opposite is required. The Heidelberg Catechism again. I quoted from question 110. The next question, 111, says this. But what does God require of you in this commandment? What does the Eighth Commandment tell us to do? That I further my neighbor's profit wherever I can or may, deal with him as I would have others deal with me, and labor faithfully that I may be able to relieve the needy. Now we noted earlier that the commandment assumes something, that it establishes the right of private property. Now, in case that sounded as though um, I'm lining up as uh, a supporter of the political right, I now wish to make a balancing point, and it's this, that the right of private property is not absolute. That it's not absolute, because our wealth comes from God, and therefore ultimately belongs to him and not to us. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. Psalm 24 verse 1. Or consider the Lord's rebuke to Israel in Psalm 50, which includes these words. I will not take a bull from your house, nor goats out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine, and all its fullness. And that, you see, brings us to the principle of stewardship. I don't want to sound partisan, actually, for uh, any side of the political debate, because I think there are sometimes weaknesses to be observed in both sides of it. Uh, Have you ever heard the saying that capitalism is about the exploitation of man by man and communism is the opposite? (laughs) Capitalism believes that property belongs to the individual. Communism in its classic form has traditionally argued that property really belongs to the community. And the individual gives to the community his work and receives from the community what he needs. But I would suggest that the Christian should approach this from a different perspective. The Word of God says that there is a God-given right to accumulate private property. But nonetheless, our property ultimately comes from God and we must therefore hold it in trust for Him, for His glory. We're under a solemn obligation to use what God has given for his glory in the world and to use it in a way that reflects his character. I love that statement in (coughs) Paul that the Lord loves a cheerful giver, but the reason is that he is one himself. Uh, By the way, the word cheerful is not quite the best translation of the original, It really means that the Lord loves an abandoned giver. 
The Lord loves a giver who gives with no thought for the consequences. Somebody who gives to overflowing. Uh, One way of translating it is a hilarious giver. Someone who is not uh, thinking within his heart as each five pound goes, well, that's an Arab's farewell to his steed. You know, it's almost like having an organ transplant. Something precious has been wrenched out of your wallet and you feel the pain of its passing. The Lord Jesus told a story of a very rich man who had a beggar named Lazarus at the entrance to his driveway. And that beggar was a test that the rich man failed. That's the point of the story. And the rich man failed it every day. He had the means to do something to relieve the poverty of that unfortunate man. The parable of the rich fool, Luke 12, 13 to 21 That is another story of a missed opportunity on the grand scale. There's a successful businessman, the kind who in modern Britain would be a role model. It's true, isn't it? They're held before us as examples for the young to emulate. And there's no suggestion in the biblical text that he came by his wealth through any kind of sharp practice. It's quite possible that his business ethics were entirely honourable, and that he worked hard and was genuinely diligent. But he reached the point where his assets had multiplied so much that his old warehouses would not do. And so it was easy to justify building bigger ones. And a question had been nagging at him all this time, what shall I do with this food? Well, of course, some of it could have gone into the mouths of starving children. And if Christians are ever left wondering within their hearts, what should I do with all this money? Well, that suggests that the answer at the very least should not be, well, hang on to it. It's interesting to observe the Apostle Paul's logic in Ephesians 4 verse 28. Let him who stole steal no longer but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give who has need. Now my suspicion is, you see, that modern evangelicals are often very happy with the first part of Paul's argument. There's a good conversion story. A man who used to steal is not stealing any longer. He's given it up. He's an ex-thief. He's now a credible church member. But wait a minute. Let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. Yes, converted villains must stop thieving, but the rewards of honest toil are not simply for our private benefit. Well, to sum up, this commandment enjoins as a positive duty that we should be the kind of person who is described in Psalm 15. I'm reading from verse 2. He who walks uprightly, and works righteousness, and speaks the truth in his heart, he who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt, and does not change, he who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. 
He who does these things shall never be moved. The commandment involves taking to heart the words of Romans 13, verse 7. Render therefore to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Customs to whom customs. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Taxes to whom taxes. I seriously remember some believers debating when uh, the Thatcher government introduced the poll tax. There was a certain amount of feeling that the tax was unjust, that it was inequitable, that it fell unfairly on those on fixed incomes and so on, and there's legitimate room for observations of that kind. But some were even thinking of taking part in the sort of can't pay, won't pay protests. Now the plain fact is that the believer has a duty to pay. It's there for us in Romans 13 verse 7. However much we dislike it, however much we may wish to use our democratic freedoms to overturn a government that introduced such taxation and to have a more equitable system for the time being, the honourable thing, the biblical thing, is to render to Caesar those things that are Caesar's. Now, I would also suggest that it involves, like Zacchaeus, making restitution to those whom we have wronged. We obey this commandment when we give and lend freely. Luke 6, verse 30, and then verse 38. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 4. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And I would even suggest that the commandment enjoins us to avoid waste. Just as after the feeding of the 5,000, the Lord Jesus instructed his friends, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Uh, Mind you, frugality can be overdone. Uh, I've come across believers whose uh, frugality is um, worn like a sort of martyr's crown. They have a way of brandishing their frugality at you, a sort of medal to be worn with honour. Um, it's interesting that one of Gandhi's patrons actually once said that it cost him a fortune to keep Gandhi in poverty. <laughs> Above all, I would suggest that the commandment here enjoins us to learn contentment. Theft springs from covetousness. And the covetous person has made a serious miscalculation. His miscalculation is this. He thinks that a man's life does consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. Of course, I'm quoting there the words of the Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 12 and verse 15 where our Saviour makes it clear that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he has. The covetous person believes that in gaining the whole world, 
even if that is achieved at the cost of his own soul, he has still made a good bargain. And we know people like that, don't we? I heard recently of someone who was seen wearing a t-shirt which had the words written across the front, he who dies with the most toys wins. And it's not hard to find examples of that mentality at work in contemporary society. Contentment lies in accepting that when God allocated not only our sphere of service in life, but also our income, that God did not cheat us. And the best antidote to theft in all its forms is to cultivate the attitude of the Apostle Paul. Philippians 4 verse 11 and following, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I wish I could always speak like Paul. I find this kind of contentment is slippery. Um, sometimes you feel you've begun to get near it, and yet the next morning the old sinful habits reassert themselves and sneak up on you and mount a surprise attack, and again you're raging with covetousness. There's something about the human heart that uh, really is, is so devious. But that kind of contentment is... Desirable, is it not? And contented people don't make good thieves. Do we have any Methodists in the gathering? Um, do Methodists still have the annual covenant service in the first Sunday of the uh, new year? Now, I owe my awareness of this service to that splendid and in some ways lifelong Methodist, the Reverend Peter Brumby, who is now in a better world. Um, it was not so much that he left Methodism as that Methodism left him. And uh, he had something about him that had the, enshrined the finest of what Methodism was at its best. Uh, and he pointed me to the Methodist Covenant Service, and we now use something similar to that in our own church the first part of the year. And there's a splendid statement in the final prayer of consecration in the covenant service which reads as follows I am no longer my own but thine put me to what thou wilt rank me with whom thou wilt put me to doing put me to suffering let me be employed for thee or laid aside for thee exalted for thee or brought low for thee let me be full, let me be empty, let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. Well done, John Wesley. Fine words, aren't they? And that, let me be full, let me be empty, let me have all things, let me have nothing, now, a Christian person who has arrived at that kind of state of mind uh, will have gone some way to tackling within his own nature the propensity that we all have to want to break the Eighth Commandment. Well, it's 
time to conclude, and I want to finish by addressing this issue. What the commandment assumes, that's how we began, what the commandment forbids, then what the commandment requires, and now finally, what the commandment says to thieves. Like the other nine commandments, the eighth is meant to affect the way that we see ourselves. One of the reasons that God gave the commandments was so that we might begin to understand what we're really like. And a consideration of the commandment should not leave us passive or neutral. The law was given, says Paul, Romans 5 verse 20, that the offense might abound. That means that the law fulfills its God-ordained role when it shows our moral failure in its true colors. Romans 7 verse 13, that sin might appear sin. So that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. The law is doing its work when lawbreakers realize to their dismay that they desperately need a law keeper. Someone to keep the law on their behalf and in their place. Now that is what Paul had in mind when he told the Galatians that the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Galatians 3 verse 24. You see, when we first encounter the law of God, it seems to offer us nothing but despair. You occasionally encounter people, not so often these days, but uh, when society was less secular, you, meet pe- you met people often who had a certain amount of church going in their background uh, and a certain minimal acquaintance with Christian truth who would cheerfully say to you, well, you know, I, I believe it's about doing your best. Uh, you know, I, I try to keep the Ten Commandments. Um, and I was often left thinking, well, you can't have tried that hard or you wouldn't be so glib. Because a person with even an atom of self-knowledge who attempts to keep any of the commandments will rapidly run into a brick wall. This is beyond me. This is more than I can manage. This is too high for me to attain to. The law makes us aware of our guilt before God. If you're the kind of person who likes a good read, I would strongly recommend one of these days that you read the autobiography of Charles Spurgeon, that remarkable Baptist minister of the 19th century. And he was converted as a teenage boy when he was about 15 years old, but says in his autobiography that prior to that, it was as though ten black horses pulled a farrow across his soul day after day, that all his acquaintance with the law of God simply condemned him. But of course, the law in doing so has the healthy effect of making us realize how much we need the forgiveness that can only be found in Jesus Christ. I'm sure most of you have heard of of George Whitfield. Until about 30 years ago, I think he was possibly the forgotten man of the 18th century awakening. 
Um, unlike John Wesley, he did not leave a denomination behind him. And uh, in some ways, um, he's not uh, so a mean, obviously amenable to uh, the approval of the evangelical public as John Wesley, because, uh, say it quietly, George Whitfield was a Calvinist. Uh, and uh, that word, I'm afraid, in some circles is enough to bring believers out in boils. Uh, it's, it's remarkable how that word seems to have associations around it that immediately put people on the defensive uh, when, in fact, it describes a system of Christian doctrine that is plain biblical. Uh, this has always been a puzzle to me. But uh, Whitfield was nothing if not a great evangelist, and his whole life gives the lie to the idea that one still sometimes hears that Calvinism kills evangelism. That idea is stuff and nonsense, really, when you look at the career of this remarkable man of God. But part of his evangelistic method he used to describe as preach and return. He would preach in a number of places and then come back to them about a fortnight later. And often on his first visit to a place, he would simply preach the law of God and nothing more. He would not say much about God's forgiveness offered in Christ to all who will receive it. And often, in fact, he left people in a state of terror, people with a real sense of, of despair that clung to them. But do you not feel there's something salutary and healthy about that? Because he was leaving them in a situation where they were aware that they had offended a holy God. And he wanted to leave that hanging in the air to let it bother them for a while, to let it get under the skin so that after a while they would really long for the kind of forgiveness that he would then preach to them on his second visit to their communities. Well, if we know ourselves, we must admit that every part of the law condemns us, including the Eighth Commandment. I posed the question, what does this commandment say to thieves? Because while I have no desire to be unnecessarily offensive or to be hard or to hurt anybody's feelings, I wouldn't do that for worlds. Believe me, we're all thieves when we face the demands of the law of God. But there is hope for thieves. And there is hope for thieves in an encounter with Jesus. I bet you all sang it at Sunday school. Now Zacchaeus was a very little man. And a very little man was he, but he was a thief. That was the main point. <laughs> He'd exploited his position as a tax collector to defraud the public, taking far more than the official rate of tax set by the authorities. And Jesus went to Jericho, among other things, with this purpose in mind, you remember the way he said at the close of the narrative, the Son of Man is come to seek and save that which was lost. And who had been lost that day? Zacchaeus. The Lord Jesus had gone to Jericho to find one lost thief and make a new man of him. And it's wonderful to reflect on the fact that there is a mighty Savior seeking thieves 
in order that he might make honest men and women of them. There's a wonderful Savior out looking for crooks and swindlers and those who cut corners and who are good at disguising the fact that they've done so. Now let me tell you that there are no thieves in heaven. Not one. I must insist upon that. The word of God says so. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. What can you do with a text like that? It's the kind of statement that leaves you feeling a bit winded, isn't it? But it's pretty final. The apostle declares on the authority of the word of God that there are no thieves in heaven. No gays either. No drunks. No idolaters and several other categories of people. But I'm not going to leave it there. Heaven is full of ex-thieves. Repentant burglars. Changed swindlers. Converted confidence tricksters. Gays. Idolaters. And so on. Characters like that who have found the forgiveness of Jesus and left their old lives behind. The church in Corinth had former thieves in it. Because if we go back to 1 Corinthians 6 and read on from verse 11, and such were, past tense, some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Our country, once famous for being law-abiding, is giving way to selfishness on the grand scale. <coughs> we need to see communities changed. There's increasing worry, for instance, about yob culture, or what have been uh, quite aptly described as feral children who seem to rule certain housing estates. We've created a society over the last 25 years where we're all scared stiff of 10-year-olds. I can remember growing up in the sort of colliery communities of the 50s and 60s where everybody's kids were everybody's business and every child who stepped out of line would get a clip on the ear from the nearest adult, whoever that adult was. And, um, well, I don't think I have grown up all bitter and twisted at this violence that was meted out to me. I thoroughly needed it. We need to have our communities transformed. I think one of the tragedies of the recent past is the coarsening of the working classes, if I might put it that way. Uh, I remember somebody saying to me when the, the film Billy Elliot came out, uh, did you enjoy the film, Phil? Have you been to see it? And... Um, 
And I had to explain that I hadn't been to see it. I mean, this person thought, you see, it was about a mining family in the Easington district. Well, my dad worked at the Vane Tempest Colliery in Seaham for most of his life. And uh, they thought that I would identify with that kind of story, kid from mining roots. But I'd seen a couple of clips on television, and what put me off was that the language was blue all the way through it. And I had not been brought up among people who swore. It took extreme provocation to get my dad to let out a very mild swear word. You know, when the hammer hit the thumb or something of that kind. But ordinarily he was a man of greatly controlled speech. And yet now on the way to any school playground you hear mothers using the vilest of language on a frequent basis. I can remember when dad's maras came home from the pit of an evening and mum would make tea and sandwiches for them and just once or twice one of them might let slip again a very mild sort of swear word the kind you hardly hear now and if mother walked in uh, well the immediate response was e florence pet i'm sorry i didn't see you were there you know there was this idea that you didn't do it in front of the women folk now it was a double standard of course I shouldn't have done it at all but there were social safeguards in a sense built into the way people spoke to one another that's all gone but I'm thinking of what John Wesley said when he first came to Canning Newcastle, when he spoke about so much drunkenness, cursing and swearing, even from the mouths of little children. Surely this is a people ripe for news of him who came to seek and save the lost. If our communities are to be transformed, they need the gospel. And that is because... Once the law has taken us to Christ, there is a sense in which Christ then takes us to the law. Let me explain. The prophet Jeremiah spoke of a new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Do you see what I meant there about the law? taking us to Christ in despair at the fact that we're being convicted and are guilty before God. And then Christ having forgiven us, taking us back to the law, where the law becomes a part of us. When the law of God is written on your heart and therefore becomes a part of your very nature, what was once a commandment, stern and forbidding, becomes a promise, offering reassurance and comfort I first heard this some years ago, and I'm grateful um, for the insight from Professor Hugh Blair of the Reformed Presbyterian Theological Hall in um, Northern Ireland. And he made the point, you see, that what was once a commandment becomes a promise. The thunder and the lightning of Sinai has ceased. Keep in step with the Spirit of God, and more and more as you grow in grace, theft will cease to be part of your life 
you shall not steal. Not anymore. Well, thank you. You've been most patient with me. So, has anyone got a question to ask? Thank you. My, my question relates to um, the, uh, the obligation that perhaps a penitent thief is under to reimburse um, and to pay back um, the, 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 the cost that, that, that he's stolen over the course of his career. He, he, he repents, he, he becomes a Christian. And what, what obligation is he under to, to pay back for the re remainder of his life? I'm always in trouble at this point because people with the strongest convictions always have the gentlest of voices. So you may not all have picked that up. I think what obligation does a thief have who is penitent to pay back what he has stolen? Is that the crude question? I think the example of Zacchaeus lays down a principle. Uh, and Zacchaeus, uh, I think, was aware also of the principle in the Old Testament law uh, that uh, restitution involved a certain element of interest as well as um, the principle. Uh, by principle, I mean the principal sum that had been taken. Now, I would need to um, refresh my memory of the precise stipulations in the Israelite law code uh, to remember exactly what was said there, but I do recall something being said about um, you know, the thief having to restore and a proportion in excess of that. Of course, it does begin to get complicated, doesn't it, when you hear of the young cat burglar who is at last uh, apprehended and asks for 48 other offences to be taken into consideration. Uh, it must be difficult, uh, I suppose, in, in some situations to uh, codify what form repentance ought to take. But uh, one of the difficulties about being asked questions, actually, is you're obliged to think on your feet, and I'm always frightened that I might lash out in some injudicious way at this point. But I am left with a feeling that in modern British jurisprudence, there's not enough attention paid to the rightful concerns of victims, that they have justice for the hurt that is done to them. Uh, and as I suggested before, for instance, domestic burglary often has a, uh, an element of psychological trauma that it leaves behind, uh, akin in some ways to rape. And, and whether our legislators ought to give serious thought to trying to institutionalise ways that restitution should be part of the process of punishment is certainly something that needs consideration. Uh, but I was thinking there of the, you know, the fellow who has stolen so much from so many that it's a bit difficult for him to know exactly what he should restore to just whom. Um, I suppose there's an analogy there with the damage that the gossip does. Uh, you know, you possibly know the old story about the gospel minister whose reputation was ruined by a young man that he'd once trusted, and the young man later sought to be reconciled, and the old fellow said to him, well, empty this pillow out of the window, and feathers went everywhere. And he then said, right, go and gather them up. And um, I said, well, well, how can I do that? He said, well, as easily as you can take back all of the hard words that were said about me and about others. And 
I think when you are often dealing with a person whose lifestyle has been technicolored uh, and who has had crime as a way of life, uh, it becomes difficult to codify what form that sort of restitution should take. Uh, and it becomes, I suppose, a nice pastoral issue, doesn't it, for the people who have the spiritual care of such a person as to how to guide them in future. I hope that's of some help. Others may have more valuable things to offer than I on that. If one steals something physical, it's possible to give it back with interest. But if one steals another person's good name, that lasts. As, as you've been saying, it is, you can't get it back. And it's, although you ask for forgiveness and that can be given, there's something left that lingers in other people's minds and that is I don't know what you do then you can't do any more can you I think um, we all heard that question didn't we well it wasn't a question it was a really, statement but, really yes it was a very helpful comment yes. uh, and I don't think it needs much further comment from myself I, I concur completely with what you said I think the only antidote is to give up the habit of gossip mm. uh, in the longer term uh, in the book of Proverbs, we're told that the words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down into the innermost parts. And, and partly we take part in malicious talk because we enjoy it as, as much as the choice morsel. You know, we come to my heart, you delicious little tidbit of news. Let me cherish and warm my heart with you. Um, now, if we only went on a diet and cut those things out, um, it would be to the good of a great many, I'm sure. I think there was a gentleman over that way who... Uh... Just, just, if you could hold yourself just for a moment until you reach the microphone. The gentleman with the microphone is going to lose several calories this oh, evening, I, I suspect. Good. Uh. <laughs> I almost said he needs to, but he's almost said from, from himself. Is that right, Peter? Um, yeah, a, a topical issue at the time being is on gambling, with the government wanting to reform much of the law in it, and uh, it strives to present gambling as a, a harmless, normal family leisure activity. Um, given there are many um, scriptural principles, apart from stealing, which uh, gambling is against, would you nonetheless um, think that as gambling involves seeking to gain specifically um, in return of nothing, uh, no goods or service. Could you say that gambling is a form of stealing in that context? Did you all get the question? The government says gambling is harmless fun. Is it, is it really a form of stealing? It's interesting when Saturday comes and the National Lottery is being publicised on the television that you're always having dangled in front of you the prospect of the winner. You know, you could be a winner. Uh, and they forget to tell us that there are about four million losers uh, on the lottery. You know, that uh, however small the stake, um, when you take part in the lottery week by week, that the cumulative losses for many of the participants are tremendous. Uh, I have no sympathy at all with the lottery particularly. I think it's an underhand tax on the poor. Uh, because it's now being used to fund projects that were previously funded out of public taxation. Uh, and um, I think further to our, our brother's point about uh, whether it's a form of theft, um, I like to ask myself how I want to receive good things in my own life. And I would want to receive those things either as the fruits of my own labours, you know, legitimately 
accumulated through my own hard work, <laughs> or, or I would like to receive good things as a blessing from people who love me and care for me and when they come as gifts. Uh, and um, the idea of becoming rich in a random way, well, it means, I think, that gambling in all its forms appeals essentially to covetousness. Uh, it appeals to an aspect of the human heart and human longings that ought not to be appealed to. And I uh, tend to feel that... Um, Christian people ought to have no truck with it, personally. And I'm uh, amazed at the amount of money that is, is thrown away. My oldest son used to ask me when we lived in Sunderland and we used to pass a betting shop quite regularly, what's that shop, Dad? And I used to say, it's a place where people throw money away. Um, except that I hadn't bargained for the fact that as a little lad, you know, he had a rather literal turn of mind and... Uh, you know, envisaged people offloading their wallets into waste bins. But they might as well have been doing that, really. Um, I hope that's some help. Yes, uh, a question on the... There's a lady here, I think, nearest to you, if you well, go there first. or comment. Actually, it happened in Sunderland, in that uh, with premium bonds, the Methodist minister at the time... His wife worked in one of the post offices at the time premium bonds came out and she refused to sell them for the simple reason that there were so many losers. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for the comment. Do you remember premium bonds? Yes. They still exist. Ernie. Ernie. Yes. Not Ernie, but Mr Calvert, I think. I have a practical uh, question. You've made clear that benefit fraud is a breach of the Eighth Commandment. The government operates a telephone line where you can report uh, benefit frauds. Is the Christian under a duty to report benefit fraud? Should a Christian report, shall we say, uh, the identity of uh, people who broke the front window of a jeweller's shop and ran away stuffing large quantities of jewellery into a sack? Uh, should Christians report on instances of domestic violence? Uh, I, I think the answer is quite straightforward. Uh, it, it hardly needs an answer. Um, is it a good thing for uh, believing people to inform the authorities when a crime has been committed? Um, you know, if we express it in terms as, as, as generally as that, well, well, yes, now there may be complicating factors, uh, because um, one of the things that often deters people from reporting crime of all sorts is uh, the problem of intimidation, uh, the, the thought that it will get back to you. Um, and therefore, I think the authorities also have a duty to protect those who do inform. Uh, and also, we have to bear in mind as well the, the, the balancing possibility that sometimes people inform for malicious reasons and that people need protection against unfair and untrue allegations that are made against them. There has to be some comeback against, if you like, the professional informer who's simply settling scores by trying to get a neighbour into trouble. But as to the general principle, uh, yes, most certainly. Uh, does, does it not make you angry when it takes place? You know, to think that uh, you yourself are paying more taxes because... Um, such and such a person was, um, is not playing fair. 
I think possibly as well, just another comment sort of to plug into that and coming sideways, uh, I would wish perhaps that as much attention was paid in society to the equivalent uh, benefit fraud is, is usually perpetrated by the relatively less well-off, relatively. And large-scale tax evasion is usually perpetrated by the relatively more well-off. But there seems to be less of a hurry, at least in, in certain parts of the body politic, to prosecute a large-scale taxi uh, evader um, as there is uh, to prosecute the benefit fraudster. This is something of a mischievous question, which I know you'll be shocked oh, that I'm giving. We're not allowed, we don't allow that. <coughs> but don't allow it. You, you said that um, you know, theft is not only theft against the individual property, but it's, uh, it's a rage against God's providence, because God yeah. has provided for the wealth that individual people have. Um, is not uh, giving uh, to the poor also then a rage against God's providence and the poverty that God has given them? And if not, why not? Can you just explain a little bit more about why? Why that is? You will get the question. If you could explain first of all why you think it might be. Well, I'm just. <laughs> there is the. Um, let's. Because I'm not quite sure how your thinking's working on that. You see. Well, we as Christian people uh, will all enjoy level different levels of wealth, not only one with another, but at different points in our lives. Um, if we. Uh, to look at our Christian brothers and sisters and say, well, there is a person in need, and I have this abundance. From my abundance, I will help them in their need. And um, but you could take that to the point, are you saying that everyone in a church should ultimately, at the end of the year, have exactly the same sort of you know, level of wealth? That the one who has something more is giving that bit more to the one who has that something left so that everybody is equal. I wouldn't be saying exactly that because Ananias and Sapphira were told that what resources they had were their own to use as they saw fit. Uh, and even if they chose to sell whatever kind of property it was, it's usually presumed to be land, but um, once they'd realised the equity in the asset, they were entitled to do as they pleased with it. Um, now, we are enjoined... Uh, particularly in the two letters to the church in Corinth, um, by the example of the Macedonian churches. Conscious that the believers in Judea were suffering famine, uh, they gave not out of their abundance but out of their poverty to do what they could to alleviate uh, the needs of those, uh, those believers. Now, um, it's interesting that Paul used the generous giving of the Macedonian churches as a stimulus to the believers in Corinth because they had promised but hadn't delivered on their promise. Um, now, uh, it's interesting that Paul sort of uses a phrase that there might be an, an equality, but I don't think he's using the phrase in any mechanistic way. It's rather that the Lord is pleased when his people do what they can to alleviate need as it exists at the time. Um, I'm certainly not thinking in any mechanistic terms of, of having a sort of means test at the end of a, a calendar year to make sure that all believers in a given congregation are getting by on about the same level of competence. Um, 
but rather simply that there should be a spontaneous longing in the heart to meet need as and when one can. The um, trying to remember the incident. It's an awful thing, the memory. It, it plays tricks on you sometimes. And I can still remember a good many of the provisions of the Treaty of Utrecht and then find myself groping for a scripture passage sometimes. Now, that's a you know, real sign of a, a memory which is beginning to get decidedly unsanctified. Um, oh, yes, the, the woman who anointed Jesus with the flask of oil and the Lord Jesus said of her she did what she could now I always find that enormously helpful uh, because it's not that any believers will be upbraided for failing to do what they couldn't have done anyway uh, you know and I, I, it, it's a hateful thing to think that old ladies on their pension and that students who are up to their eyes in debt and so on should be made to feel guilty about what they're not giving when their position is such that they can't do that much anyway uh, I have a brother who's a missionary with Wycliffe and he's often observed to me that missionaries are often kept on the field by other missionaries. You know, it's, it's, it's the giving of people like that that supports others uh, and it's remarkable how far the widow's might actually goes. But I, I wasn't envisaging anything um, unduly mechanical. Is, is that getting near your question, Mike, or were you thinking of something completely other? Only the... Um the, just, just to kind of you know, follow the logic through of um, not stealing because it goes against God's providence, that God has provided them. Um, certainly we see in Scripture, don't we, the idea that, that God gives and God takes away. You know, some of us are not wealthy, never have been, never will be. Uh, others are, and um, it's, it's not uh, immoral to be wealthy. Um, and there's certainly I can see biblical uh, sort of uh, directives telling us to, um, you know, help those who are in poverty. But it's, it's how far you take that. Some Christians would take that to, a, you know, a, a mechanical degree, in a sense. And, um, but, I, you know, I, I can't really see that in Scripture, as you have said. But I'm not sure I fully understand why not, if you're going to take the logic of, of what you were saying about God's providence. Well, I suppose uh, that would be an example of the... Um rhetorical device known as the reductio ad absurdum. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> you know, that, that it's, it's developing a, a, a point by extending it logically to the degree where it becomes absurd. And I don't think we find any evidence in Scripture for a kind of Christian communism. Uh, you know, I can often admire, for instance, the spirit that animates the various Anabaptist communal groups but personally I'm not convinced that they're obeying a command that I'm disobeying by living communally and sharing their property in common and that sort of thing uh, though I, I took your point about relative degrees of wealth um, I, I was chatting with John earlier today uh, that I once uh, used to sit in the same history tutorials as Lord Falconer of Thuriton um, the Lord Chancellor Yes, of, official Tony Blair's best mate is, is his title, really. Um, and uh, now here I am, the minister of a small church in a small, insignificant denomination in a small town uh, on the edge of nothing. Um, and, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're never going to be wealthy if you become an independent evangelical minister. 
but um, unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, I would have lost heart, uh, says the psalmist. I mean, the, you know, the, the Lord gives a lot more than money, doesn't he? And, uh, you know, while um, some believers may be short of money, the Lord's not. I, I don't think finance is ever an issue in the Lord's work, actually. But I, I could be in danger of going off at all sorts of tangents here. So could I. And there's probably uh, a relevant question. Uh, no, no. Over here, please. And this will probably have to be the last question, I think. You briefly mentioned uh, usury, and there seems to be quite a lot of that going on around us. We all get offers from banks every week offering us large loans with very little investigation of our credit history. And uh, we read in the papers about the level of debt the country's in. And it seems that people are being oppressed by some banks and credit card companies because of their irresponsibility with money. But do we become party to that if we have our savings in a bank which is paying us interest from that or if, if we hold shares in such a bank? The difficulty <coughs> with that is to envisage what the alternative might be. Uh, there's only one banking system in operation in this country at the moment that, w that we can use. And I quite take your point that interest rates are often particularly high, especially with credit card companies. Uh, and one valuable thing that we can do with our young people is to educate them in how to manage money. Uh, but I don't think we currently have the option that Islamic people do. There are now Islamic banks which operate on the principle that no interest at all is, uh, is awarded. It's their belief that to make any kind of interest charge would be, um, to, would be tantamount to usury. Uh, the medieval church, before the Reformation, had similar views, uh, although they were never pressed home because um, a good many leading princes of the church in those days used to borrow money at colossal rates of interest in order to build um, their Episcopal palaces, um, St. Peter's in Rome, among others. Uh, I, I don't know how one can really opt out of the current banking system and use another one, if, if you see what I mean. Uh, so while it's messy, it, I think it's a matter of encouraging people to make wise decisions on the basis of the current system that we have and to use the system to best advantage. Uh, but whether there would be ways, if there was a more, a greater Christian consensus in society of building some sort of framework into the, the way that banks lend uh, and into things like establishing creditworthiness on the part of borrowers. Um, I can't remember the statistics, but the amount of credit card debt in this country is, is colossal. It's... Um, you know, it's as high as the Great Pyramid of Giza, by the sound of things. Thank you. We have to end there, I'm afraid. I'm sure that if anybody's got individual questions they want to put to Phil, you'd be happy to talk to them afterwards. I'm sure you would, Phil. Uh, yes, except I want to go and see my mum in Sunderland. <laughs> uh, I'm sure we'll allow you to do that as well. I just want to say thank you very much indeed to Phil Arthur for coming along tonight, for the stimulating and clear talk he's given to us, I'm sure, set us thinking as well. And for his reminder, he's a reminder I took, because increasingly I find in evangelical churches we preach the gospel 
as if the Lord did not exist and had no role in the proclamation of the gospel for his reminder that we need to present both law and gospel together. So thank you for coming to do that and for your talk and for answering our questions.